Hi, this is Arij Noor, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Wrap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Dr. Andrew Peters is a proud Wurundjeri and Yorta Yorta man and senior lecturer in Indigenous Studies and Tourism at Swinburne University. We'll be chatting about the role of colonialism in the Black Lives Matter movement and how it relates to First Nations people here in Australia, amongst other things. Dr. Andrew Peters, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Good morning, Louise. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So at the beginning of the show, at the opening of the show, I mentioned that I've always felt like there are two Australias, one where folks have a sense of how this country was established and what the consequences of that has been, and another where, um, which is probably more mainstream, that looks at all the good things people can have in Australia with no consideration of, of much else. Where does a disconnect like this come from? Uh, um that's a great question, Arish, and thanks for opening with that one. Um, it's essentially for me, it's it's representative of what what some people call the entangled histories of Australia. That um, something that I, I teach my students very early is is an understanding of that disconnect in our views and perspectives of history. Primarily, um, if you if you go back through the history of Australia, you trace the disconnect beginning at the very beginning of. Um, you know, what settlement slash invasion um, of Australia, what in class, to be kind of politically correct, I call it now first contact to allow the students to make their own judgment on it. But that time created that disconnect where the understandings of Aboriginal people by the British at the time, um, and obviously this is born from the experiences of of Cook and Banks um, when they first arrived, that into the narrative of the Europeans in particular and the narrative that was growing in Europe, in the, in Britain, in England, um, rather than the narrative here, because the, the experience of settler colonists here in Australia was quite different. The, the experience and the understanding of those guys was quite different to the one of the powers to be, or powers that be in England. Mm. Um, and that disconnect create, or came from, from that sort of notion that there was a massive misunderstanding about what Aboriginal people were, what Aboriginal culture was, how it existed, how it lived. And particularly, there was a a real lack of understanding of any depth of what Aboriginal culture was in the 1700s in Australia. And, and gradually, it just kind of, you know, became a perpetuating sort of mm-hmm. narrative, if you like, that but the limited experiences of many colonists when they came here reinforced their version of that history, although more and more were were engaging with Aboriginal people and starting to learn that what they had learned about Aboriginal people and culture wasn't quite accurate. Um, Now, unfortunately, that has become sort of, you know, like a microcosm, I guess, of of our history in that gradually more and more Australians learn about Aboriginal culture and realise that it's much more than they had first learned. Mm. Um, As I say, unfortunately, though, that's... The, the, that's, I guess, the minority yeah. Australians, I would say, that, that understand that. So that disconnect still exists today, even though it's being slightly addressed, that it, it's come about from a perpetuating of a certain narrative about native people in general across the world, or Indigenous peoples all over the world, 
but specifically Aboriginal Australians and what we were relative to Europeans as well. It's amazing because in the last, like, three weeks, I would say, this conversation has probably progressed more in the mainstream than it has in my entire lifetime, um, which is which is almost – it's almost unbelievable. And there are conversations now, you know, there have been – organisations, First Nations organisations talking about changing curriculums in Australia for years and years and years. And now there's this huge petition and, you know, this conversation is being had on some mainstream media about, you know, giving young people in school a proper historical account of what has happened in Australia, something that doesn't just wash over things that might be uncomfortable, something that really, really engages. Do you think that would help? Oh, certainly. You know, again, from what I've just sort of talked about too, education has been the thing that was lacking in creating those perceptions of Aboriginal people that, that date back to 200-plus years. And education today is still the issue that the majority of people now that have a, a, an empathy, if you like, for Aboriginal cultural issues and particularly an understanding of the disparity in treatment of Aboriginal people in Australia today... Um, comes from education and being more aware and being able, I guess, to view the world in a slightly different way to the colonial one that, you know, our nation seems to have been founded upon. So how do we connect, you know, colonisation? How do we connect invasion um, and these kind of conversations that have been had for a long time in Australia with a movement like Black, Life Ma- Black Lives Matter? How, where does that connection um, extend? Well, again, it, it goes back to education, I guess, reached it at a really fundamental level. But for me, too, it's about getting Australians to understand and value Aboriginal culture to them, mm. that our culture and our people, our elders, tell us that, that our culture and our history belongs in the land and it comes from the land and that we belong to the land. And that's a common trait across Indigenous groups all over the world. Yet in Australia, we have the disconnect between seeing that and seeing how it relates to us as a contemporary society. We kind of see it, I guess, as, as something that's fixed in history that, you know, belongs back before the, the you know, what the invasion, the settlement of Australia, whatever people want to call it, um, but that it exists today and that it's part of all of us. Look, if you live in Australia, you live on Aboriginal land. There's, you know, no denying that. The High Court decreed that in 1992 with the Mabo decision. But that doesn't mean that you can't still be connected to it. But, but you know, for a lot of people, and, and I, I often have these discussions with, with um, school groups and, and other organisations that I speak to, that for everyone, you, you can make that connection to the land yourself. You can make that connection to Aboriginal culture, even though you're not an Aboriginal person, that you, Australia is your home. So your home now is home to that culture that's the oldest living culture of the world. I talked before about valuing it. You know, we, we do have the oldest living culture in the world, yet it's not something that we're outwardly proud of as a nation. We don't promote that very much at all mm. on the international scene, yet, you know, it's something that we should be immensely proud of and feel connected to. But as I say, you know, that disconnect feeds into that, that people don't feel that connection or don't see it. Um, in some cases, I guess, maybe they don't want to see it. Um, but certainly for me, that's, that's the key, that understanding that connection to how we can be a part of this culture that belongs to the land that we're all on mm-hmm. will help understand 
the underlying issues behind the causes of things like um, you know what's erupted in the US and 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 came and um, is emerging here again with the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. Yeah, it's amazing. You know that you have mentioned that. You know, in Australia, First Nations cultures are the oldest living cultures in the world um, and that isn't valued in Australia. You know, there have been sacred sites that have been blown up. There are, you know, birthing, sacred birthing trees here in Victoria that are potentially, you know, people are fighting, First Nations people are fighting for them not to be bulldozed. Um, And there are also statues of, of people like Captain Cook that are being immensely protected when the narrative from, you know, a government is that certain things or certain, you know, certain buildings or certain statues or certain areas are considered heritage listed, but others are not. Um, what does that kind of tell us about Australia? Oh, again, it just points to that disconnect the region. Mm. It really does. Um, you know, I, I, I was engaged in a few of these discussions last year with the closing of the climb of Uluru mm. um, that, you know, a lot of people are saying, but it's just a rock, it's just it's public property, it's ours, we should be able to walk on it. If we, for example, if we started a public climb of uh, Flinders Street Station and we realised after a little bit of time that we were destroying it, people would be up in arms because it's such it's seen as such a part of, of such a big part of the heritage of Melbourne, for example. We often focus on that built history, the colonial history of our country, and again, it just points to that disconnect that we don't see anything beyond that as being part of Australian history. And the reality is that. You know, we've now got a multicultural society that looks at the world in multiple, multiple ways, mm-hmm. um, yet we can't seem to be able to do that with our history. Aboriginal culture, as you know, has been here a lot longer than anything else, mm-hmm. um, and it, it can be, it should be, a part of who we are today, not just relegated to, you know, an aspect of history from a, you know, and I'm using quotation marks here, a native group mm-hmm. um, that doesn't have any relevance today. It's just that it staggers me at times the attitude of, of things that you just talked about too. Um, now I'm not I'm not one to denounce these statues in and of themselves, you know, because they do reflect what I think too is still an important part of our history. Um, but we need to be able to tell that with the truth around what those statues and what those people represented and the time that it represented too. When and it's documented in, in multiple areas, the attitudes toward Aboriginal people of the era of people like James Cook, etc., was nothing short of, um, you know, derogatory. And, and there was a, a great sense of European, particularly British, superiority over Aboriginal people at that time. Um, and that disconnect, as I say, is fed into the narrative that continues that we can't... We cannot see the value of Aboriginal culture and heritage in a country that has now essentially become very myopic in our colonial viewpoint and and worldview. It's, you know, we've spoken a lot about disconnect and there's, you know, I've I've felt this sense that there are kind of two worlds in Australia and I've mentioned this on the show before and we've spoken about it somewhat now. How do we bridge that? How do we reconnect? Because I think at this point, like you said, it is a minority of people who have a sense of, of, you know, what this country has been built on and what the consequences of that has been. But it needs to be a majority for things to change. So how do we bridge it, bridge the gap? How do we, you know, reconnect? Oh, another great question, Arigi. I think if I knew the answer to that and had a simple answer to that, I'd be somewhere in Canberra getting paid more money than I am now. (laughs) 
yeah. Um, but again, I, I think it it gets back to education that yeah. um, it, it's going to require generational change. It's going to take a long, long time. I, I recall a tweet that I briefly um, saw from Barack Obama this morning about the patience that's required mm. to to affect generational change and real cultural change in a society, and, and we're going to have to do that. Um, I often mention to her, I lost my, my, um, my wonderful late mother who was an, uh, an elder, a local elder. I lost her last year, but she was always talking about the need to recognise and uh, recognise both Indigenous and non-Indigenous cultures in our world today. Um, but also I, I look at the fact that I grew up in a world that was a lot, that treated me a lot better than the world that she grew up in mm. and the way that treated her and that my kids are growing up in a world that accepts them as Aboriginal boys much more than the world that accepted me as an Aboriginal boy. Mm. Um, having said that, you know, I, I certainly didn't have a bad childhood or anything like that, but in a general societal sense, we're much more accepting now of Aboriginal culture than we were when I was young. Uh, and so I can see that generational change and I'm, I'm very hopeful that education is the, is the answer. Mm. I hope, though, that, that we get the political and government support in that area that we need, that, that, that our education system, our political system, starts to understand the value of teaching this to all Australians. And, and I think that if we can get that to that stage, that that will provide you know, a lot of impetus into, into addressing that disconnect that, you, that we've talked about. Yeah. It's interesting because um, you know a lot of people love AFL as a sport, or at least if you're in, if you're in Victoria. Um, but we've seen you know time and time again, we've seen documentaries, we've seen speeches of how Indigenous and other Black players are treated um, within that institution. But recently, I think at the last weekend, um, players are kneeling before games, and you know there is a somewhat of a progressive. Or progress in terms of the gestures. Um, I don't really care about AFL. I don't really enjoy the sport, so I don't know how seriously what? I take it personally. But if you know an institution that, in many ways, has been proven time and time, time again to have a problem with racism, um, is making gestures like this, does it mean we're at a different place today than we were maybe a couple of years oh, I, ago? Yeah, I certainly think so, and. and... <laughs> The AFL, I think, does a, a very, very good job of addressing these issues, um, given its, its situation as well. Um, obviously, there is, there is still work to do. Um, I had a discussion about the issue with Eddie Betts with some friends over the weekend, and one of my non-Indigenous friends showed me showed me the tweet that related to him. And um, my reaction has gone from anger when I see these things now to sort of pity and and for me it's a bit it's a, a shift in how society looks at these things that you know 20 years ago this a, a post like that would have garnered as much laughter and amusement as it would derision and scorn from people whereas today you know we've got um, football clubs we've got the AFL actively trying to um, do things to ameliorate those issues, mm. to find the perpetrators, to call them out. Um, unfortunately, it's taken a lot of sacrifice from you know some really really strong individuals, you know Michael Long, Nicky Winmar, most recently of course Adam Goods, that they've made so many personal sacrifices to make this an issue nationally mm. um, that we've got to the point now where we're getting more support 
for, for these sorts of things. But again, to me, at, at, at points of that disconnected, a lot of people just don't see the damage that those, you know, what they see as a minor thing. The intention was humour, so it can't be offensive, but the reality is it's very hurtful yeah. to a lot of people. Um, you know, for me too, I started thinking about Eddie's family when that came out and, and what they'd be going through. Um, so it, it, I guess the AFL certainly, I think, can do more and can do better, mm-hmm. but they're very much on the right path and facing in the right direction, I think. And it's just, it's it's a it's an overall community thing. You know, I know now when I go to the football too with the, the Indigenous round and the support that we get from the broader community as well is is much greater and, and growing all the time compared to what it was. My boys feel so proud to go to Dreamtime at the G now, where Richmond supporters, of course, go Tigers, just had to put that in there. Um, they feel so proud to go and express their Aboriginality when they go to these things, um, which is something, of course, that I, I wouldn't have felt comfortable doing as a young boy mm. in the society I grew up in. So, yeah, again, the AFL is playing a leading role, but obviously we've still got more to do. And to be honest, Areej, I don't ever think we're going to get rid of racism. Yeah. Um, I just hope we can get to a point where we're able to deal with it in a much better way than we do now. Yeah. Um, Dr Andrew Peters, it has been such a joy chatting with you because sometimes I can really put myself in these incredibly negative positions and have, you know, maybe not consider how far the world has come or how far, you know, there is to go and considering the fact that we're in a long game and um, there's so much great stuff that's happening and we can take the wins as they come um, and not just feel devastated every day about all the awful things. So it has been really, really great to chat with you. No worries, Arish. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for your time. Dr Andrew Peters is a proud Wurundjeri and Yorta Yorta man and Senior Lecturer in Indigenous Studies and Tourism at Swinburne University. Khaled Wasami is a writer, creative producer, thinker, tweeter um, and his short story list of known remedies is in an anthology called After Australia out now through Affirm Press. Khaled, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Um, it's really funny because you've come on this show a couple of times and Triple R probably knows your voice from some presenting, but it is really nice to be able to catch up with you um, yeah. live on radio. It's like people are eavesdropping on our chat, which I love for us. I love a good on our chat. <laughs> so you wrote this um, short story called List of Known Remedies for this anthology after Australia. Tell me a little bit about, like, the concept of the anthology itself and then a little bit about the story. Um, The anthology grew out of a project by um, Diversity Arts Australia, which was um, their idea was to imagine what, imagine sort of like a conception of what Australian climate history would look like. Mm. And sort of like get a bunch of writers to respond to that um, prompt or theme. And of course, um, there were, this was all happening last year before we realized that there is no future. So <laughs> it's been, um, a really interesting and fun process. And like, uh, we've done some workshops with the writers, um, and definitely meet a bunch of the writers and sort of like, um, there was some sort of like theoretical framework and underpinning the project, but mostly they, they really let us flow through the prompt and we each responded in our own way. It's amazing because, like, 2050, like you said, if you're writing, you know, what, you you know, writing a story about 
2050 as a time last year, you probably feel a little bit more sure of it than if you were writing it right now because (laughs) it's all a bit chaotic at the moment. Well, one of the stories in this election, um, Omar Sekou's um, story, White Flu, actually in many ways um, anticipated the coronavirus crisis. He wrote a story last year and it's about a mass um, flu that affects a large portion of the population and the accompanying mass hysteria. To summarize, I think the nail on the head, um, my story is about something altogether different, so it's not quite um, a future, more of an alternate reality, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting because I remember a couple of, oh, I don't know how long ago it was now, time, what is time, but um, Claire G. Coleman was on the show and we were talking about speculative fiction and Indigenous mm. speculative fiction and thinking about what science fiction means in the time of, like, coronavirus pandemic. But yeah. now I'm thinking about it in the time of, like, the race war or, like, <laughs> the time yeah. of the revolution. Well, like, um, um, Claire's a really interesting writer you mentioned about that, because, like, her book um, has, is, it does talk about all of that. The, her new book, The Old Lie, and her author, short story in this collection, um, does touch on all of that. It does touch on the intersection between race and health and um, crisis, and also, like, you know, white supremacy. Yeah. So, Harlan and I tried to do some troubleshooting. Um, but the coronavirus means that none of our guests are allowed in the studio and sometimes the phone is not the best way to speak to people. So we just decided that Harlan will just try and speak slowly or slower than his usual pace and then hopefully the audio quality, might, you know, might not be as good but at least you'll understand what's being said. Maybe that's the, that's the plan yep. for now. So just, just talk as slowly as possible. Um, we were just talking on the phone while we were playing the track about trying to imagine 2050 and, you know, your story in the anthology was not a big post-apocalyptic experience. There wasn't a virus involved necessarily. It seemed kind of normal. Yeah, it's mostly about, like, people trying to figure out what kind of emoji they are. Yeah. I mean, that is an element, yes. What kind of emoji are you? Um, it's just, it was just, it was just amazing for me because I, upon reading it, you know, I really, really enjoyed it and everyone listening should go and grab a copy of the whole anthology. It's incredible. But upon reading it, I just felt like, um, and I mentioned this to you on the phone before, I felt like it is something that I could see in 2030. I mean, same with all of the, you know, Uh, post-apocalyptic stuff because we never know. But often when people ask you to think 30 years into the future or 50 years in the future, it is we consider a lot of chaos and destruction and, like, madness when 30 years ago was 1990 and it was, you know, not that exciting. And I think think that's the strangest thing about it. It's just like you're asked to... You ask to imagine uh, the far future in all its drama, but you realise that you, we're stuck in a crisis now, and our concerns are still very basic. Mm-hmm. I still worry about what I'm going to make for dinner every night. I worry about my friends and how what they what they're up to. Um, and it's it's sort of like we still have these sort of like low key lives with these basic with these basic concerns, and the apocalypse sort of seems to be in the background a little bit. Mm-hmm. I feel glib referring to like the um the various things that we're dealing with as as, as apocalypses. I don't think they're apocalypses. Um but it's yeah, it's really strange how like 
the fundamental concerns of our lives don't really change. And I, 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 I sometimes you know, like something comes out in the story, and it's sort of like, oh, I didn't, I didn't mean that, but that's nice. Mm. And I think, I think one element I do like about my story is the fact that the, the drama is happening in the background and in the foreground, just people living their lives. Yeah, and that's what. I felt really connected to because you're absolutely right. I've thought about so many times, you know, watching all these documentaries of, you know, the Black Panther Party or the Nation of Islam Mm. or even in Australia in the 60s and these big kind of civil rights moments and thinking about, you know, what it would be and what your role would be in that moment and in that movement. And I feel like we're somewhat in the midst of maybe, for me personally, the most chaotic time of my life, right, in terms of the world. But I'm spending all my time at home, working from home and, yeah. and teaching students how to do radio for like yeah. 90%, 90% of my life. And so you're absolutely right. The mundane is always the kind of foreground day to day and the chaos is often in the background. And I think the last part of our anxiety comes from the tension between our everyday lives fundamentally remaining just as in many ways, dull and mm-hmm. um, um, plodding, and, uh, and and we're just trying to get through it all the same. And meanwhile, we have all this anxiety about our position in the world and our future, and this, you know, things that are going on to people that we coincide with in our lives in other countries. And it's really strange, isn't it? It's really, it's really strange. It's also really. <laughs> It's really amazing too because um, for some reason I could see what my future looked like at least in the next couple of years if, you know, if I was asked last year, like I said. But now yeah. it is – I feel like those – it's kind of shaky now. I couldn't – I don't yeah. know where I – you know, the the limits are a little bit more intense than they were in the past. Yeah, there's been some – yeah, there's been some – there's been some chaotic moments. I mean, like, I, I was supposed to be in, in, in Greece for the first half of this year, um, working working on a little book thing that I've been sort of convinced myself is what I need to do. Um, and, like, I had to come back because of the coronavirus, and I look back on that time, and I'm like, wow, I, I had a pretty fun three weeks in this country. I've been four months. <laughs> it's it's but, actually amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's really great, and 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 now it's it's I don't know, like I feel like that's a responsible bit of my zen lately with that um, life in general. I just feel like uh, I've had my little chaotic moment. I've already like mentally mentally um, packed away the air in my head, <laughs> so I'm not really worried about like <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like I'm really, I've been quite chill the last few months ever since I got back. Yeah, it's amazing though because. Um, you were in Greece and then the virus hit and you were in Europe and you had to come to Australia. And that is not, you know, without its processes and without its difficulty. My dad is still overseas and is yet to come home and hasn't been able to come home. And there's a bunch Mm. of other people, my extended family, that are in the same position. They're like stranded in these random places. Yeah, my mum is in Somalia right now in April, but she hasn't been able to find the flight back. And it's been like um, quite strange because, like, now she's now my mom's going through the prospect of something she never considered before, which is her being bored in Somalia. Um, so, like, we all want to come back as soon as possible, but it's getting pretty 
Cody Hall and Simon Sinclair. It's. I think my dad's kind of in the same position. He's he's in Saudi Arabia with his family and his mum, who you know is this amazing elder in our community, and. Um, you know, it's usually such an exciting time to go overseas yeah. and to hang out with his mum and, like, all of, so many of his siblings are there and everyone's just kind of living their life. And I think he's, he's just kind of over it, which, which is kind of unusual for someone who talks a lot about, you know, going and seeing family and loving that time. It's just so yeah. funny. Yeah, my mum's incredibly exciting. So what have you been up to besides, you know, writing this, you know, short story that you did a while ago and working on the book that you're working on at the moment, which I cannot wait for that to come out. Um, have you been doing woodwork stuff? What have you been doing? Oh, I've actually built a – so I got into bouldering a while ago, which is um, that spot where you climb the walls. And um, um, I – because they closed all the gyms and stuff because of the coronavirus. Uh, my neighbor and I actually built our own bouldering wall, and that was pretty fun. And it was like a two or three month project. And now it's this huge thing that we're forced to like exercise on every day. And I was, I'm just like, well, I really like building it. I don't really like. Um, I'm not really into the idea of. Um, I, I guess I, I, I guess I'm a bit out of practice. Using yeah, it, climbing practice. it. Yeah, I, I enjoyed building it far more than I enjoyed climbing it. So um, I, I'm trying to convince my neighbor to add, if we could add some extensions to the wall now. So that's my that's my little um, DIY project that I've been working on during isolation. I mean, it sounds excellent. It's interesting that that's what you were working on. Like of all the things that you could have, you could have built, you decided a wall that you can climb in collaboration oh, with I, your neighbor was was where it was I where also, you were going to do I also it. Re- I also redecorated my kitchen. Also, this is us hanging out again, like we're doing that thing. Um, but I redecorated my kitchen, and that was exciting. Okay, I love that for you. I'm really glad that you've managed to make use of this time. I mean, you've probably done more than a lot of people, myself included. I've spent a lot of time just like really doing nothing, and and then going to bed. I remember I was talking with a friend. Um, the other day and she was like what is the most appropriate time to go to bed like what is the earliest appropriate time to go to bed and mm. I have that down to a science it's 9 30 is the most appropriate oh, wow. time for an adult to go to bed yeah and then you can like read very... yeah is it early or late it's very brave to go to bed at 9 no, I feel. 9 30 yeah. I mean you don't fall asleep until about 11 yeah I feel that I feel that I, I go to bed at like one or two, but I I I I understand that some people go to bed a bit earlier. <laughs> I understand and respect. I just think that you know uh, by seven thirty or whatever, we generally are. You know, for me, I've got nothing else to do. Like I've worked, yeah. I've gone for a walk, I've done what needed to be done. I've had conversations with my family. I've you know possibly seen some friends. Like there's everything has been done. And it's only seven yeah. o'clock, so there's a oh, few yeah. hours you're to kill before bed. Right. <laughs> you're absolutely right. I, I, I really don't do anything between the hours of mine and whenever I go to bed. <laughs> exactly. Maybe I should go to bed N- earlier. Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe if that works for you, you know, it is what it is. Let me know about um, how this book is coming along because we're just listen. I recognise that you're also in this period of a pandemic and you know i don't want to project productivity onto you but also like we need the book so yeah it's a great book it's 
it's it's it's legitimately like a really great book. I, I've been reading it over and over the past few weeks ever since I received it, and like um, there's a whole bunch of really great writers on it. Um, Clay Coleman's in there, Hannah Donald's in there. Should I just read, read over the list of writers? And it is. It's an incredible book. I've read about yeah. half of it, um, and it is one that I think has some of the greats in Melbourne, some of whom, you know, may not have published too much as yet, but, you know, uh, by 2050, they'll be the legends. And Yeah, absolutely. You know, the voices of people like Hannah Donnelly are just so incredibly important, but also just beautiful, right? I've read a few oh, of her God. things and seen a bunch of her work when she was here in Melbourne, and she's just amazing. And it's so great to have a story by her out into the world. How's it going with your book? It's going all right. Like, um, I had a bit of a breakthrough the other night. I realized that um, this scene that I was trying to write wasn't going to happen. And, like, that's always a good thing when you realize that you don't have to do something that you've been trying to do for a while. Um, but apart from that, I'm just plugging away at it. Like, it's been two or three years of my life at this point, so I'm pretty over it, as you can imagine. I mean... <laughs> I was really expecting a little bit more, like, enthusiasm <laughs> and excitement. <laughs> you, I mean, I'm, I'm really genuinely very, very excited for your book to come out. I think it is, you know, going to be so fantastic. And if, you know, I go by all the stuff that I've read of yours in the past, you know, I know it'll be excellent, but I also recognise that you're probably over it. I, could, I can say that for you. I don't know. It's it's just uh, it's just... Uh... I sometimes I sometimes realise that I spend a lot of time discounting things in my own head to make this make the whole concept seem a bit safer. Yeah. I mean like the alternative is to get excited about this book and I'm not really interested in being excited about the book excited about it, you know? Okay. I feel like yeah, I know what you mean. Um and hopefully it'll get done and hopefully um I'll be able to show it to my friends and have this you know yeah, I mean, listen, it's a thing, it's a hurdle. Once you get there yeah. and it's out into the world, that will be it. It won't even be yours anymore. And right. really, we're just so waiting. Great. We're just waiting for that <laughs> moment, if I'm honest with you. I, I would not want to take that off your shoulders, but we're waiting for that moment. That's all I have to say. I just can't wait to go to the uh, launch and to have a copy. That means a lot. I've, I've, actually, I've actually spent more time planning uh, uh, an, an ideal launch for a book than I've actually spent writing the book I reckon to be <laughs> I love that for you, but I also would really love to be involved in those plans. So if you're going to continue working on those plans oh, for yeah. the launch, make sure that my name of is like right in of there. Um, it's been so much fun chatting with you. I'm really excited about this book. I think that um, After Australia is such a timely series of short stories, a timely anthology for us to read now, but also one that, you know, I imagine in 20 years we'll reflect on and think about, mm. you know, where people were at. And also this moment right yeah. now is clearly going to be a moment, an important moment in history. 2020. Also, how, yeah. Also, how cool is the cover of the book? It's amazing. It's so Which good. Yeah. It's so good. <laughs> it really like, you know, I don't on this show and especially when you're making radio or whatever, sometimes you don't want to stand too hard cuz you don't want to, you know, be unfair. But like it is such a good cover. It is such a good book. There are so many amazing people with their work in there and it just yeah, 
it's special, so I would highly recommend folks to check it out. If you check it out on your library or at your library or if you buy it, it's called After Australia and um, Harlot is featured in it alongside a bunch of amazing other writers. Thank you so much for joining me. Hopefully we can catch up in person at some time. Of course, absolutely. Thanks, Khaled. Thank you, Reed. So I want to say big, big thanks to all of my guests this morning. Big thanks to Dr Andrew Peters, who's a proud Wurundjeri and Yorta Yorta man and Senior Lecturer in Indigenous Studies and Tourism at Swinburne University. We spoke about how disconnected it can feel here in Australia, um, especially as it relates to history of the, the history of this country, um, invasion, colonisation and what the consequences of that have been. And so he gave us some insights into what we can do um, in terms of that and thinking about that. Also, big, big thanks to writer, creative producer and a really good friend of mine, Khaled Wasami. Um, he jumped on the phone to talk about a lot of things. We spoke about heaps of stuff. But most importantly, we spoke about his short story called List of Known Remedies in a new anthology of works called After Australia that is out now through Affirm Press. It features some incredible artists, including Hannah Donnelly, Omar Saker, Claire G. Coleman, a bunch of awesome writers um, in Australia. And they uh, were tasked with imagining what things will be like in Australia in 2050. So it's pretty, pretty cool. There's lots of speculative fiction type stuff in there, but also um, like Khaled's piece, it was a little bit more real to the, um, you know, it, it focused on the foreground of just living day to day while the chaos was happening in the background. Be safe and be kind and I'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Wrap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and if you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.